0: welcome back this is writer richards with let us think about it i want to thank all of you for tuning in the podcast is of course a work of love it's kind of a labor of love but i also feel like it's a type of calling to get out some ideas and to really kind of exercise the old gray matter and of course i'm really interested in finding a richer understanding of the world and having you on this journey with me is great I definitely could use some help on the journey, so if you get a chance, rate and review the show, visit the website, LetUsThinkAboutIt.com, sign up for our newsletter, maybe give us a one-time donation, whatever you want to do. All right, now on with the show. Richard Sinnott's The Culture of the New Capitalism is fantastic. Of course, it's a bit of a distillation drawing on multiple books over years and years of experience, and it's really condensed in some real gems. Literally every paragraph has a takeaway. It's centered on how our society and people deal with work, talent, and consumption. And so it ties in with several of the previous books that we've read. I mean, it'd be quite easy to see here that Sandell read maybe four pages of Sennett's little rant on meritocracy, and he expanded it into his own book. And it also seems like maybe Sennett and Jackal from Moral Mazes, either they were buddies or they both reached the same conclusions about how corporations shape people. Now, in section three, he goes into marketing and consumption, which offers this nice little catchphrase I've been using lately, which is gold plating. But, of course, you're probably going to have to wait for another episode before we get to that because the foundation here is just really good and I just can't rush through it. So all of this came from his castle lectures at Yale in 2006. And, of course, Sennett is an ethnographer, social theorist, and historian. And, yeah, he actually goes out and interviews people. He just doesn't sit in his ivory... uh, Ivory Tower and Pontificate. Part One Militarizing Society The Iron Cage of Bureaucracy. So, this is Max Weber's idea. You know, the Protestant work ethic guy that I bring up about, I don't know, every other podcast. Well, the Iron Cage, you might be tempted to think of it as maybe the Octagon or the Thunderdome. But no, it's actually a metaphor for how rigid and confining a bureaucracy can be. And this of course leads to this trapped feeling and feeling of being unable to escape. And yeah, I probably didn't need to say that, did I? You probably could have figured that out. But the alternative of no hierarchy or no social organization is people just doing what they want. And actually that kind of sounds great, right? Uh, Yeah, but it probably has a few problems. People left alone can devolve into Thunderdome. And then they just run around in packs with really bad fashion choices, and they cause chaos, and then Mel Gibson shows up, and ah. uh, But basically, instability is really not good for economic growth or for the mentality of your citizens. It's really hard to have a, a thriving farm when guys in motorcycles keep running over your yams, uh, much less like having a stable nation when the yam farmers take their hose to the bikers, and uh, that just sounded weird, Never mind. But to solve this, as Weber points out, Otto von Bismarck, Otto, hmm. uh, now in Germany, he took a militaristic mindset and he mapped this onto society in this kind of organizational structure of the military. Now, this does two pretty obvious things. It gives people a place or a position in society and it sets up a hierarchy where each level knows what their role is and they know that they need to be busy working to fulfill it. Of course, there's also complaints against this. The major complaint of this kind of organizational militarized structure, this kind of pyramid social structure, is about the lack of freedom or individuality. I mean, on the other hand though, no one can say, I don't know where I fit in because, damn it, you got a uniform, you got a desk, this is your job. You know exactly where you're supposed to be. And Bismarck knew that people that know where they're supposed to belong are less likely to revolt. And this is the beginning of what is called social capitalism. Nope, your carriage is right here, and yours is right here, look, you know what, we're just gonna leave the doors open, you're free to leave whenever you like, sir, but, uh, I mean, why would you go, and why would you leave your friends and family, and if you work hard, we'll give you a shiny new button, you we'll put it right there on your shirt for you, and won't all your friends and family be so jealous, mm-hmm. So, this social stability leads to profit, because stability is, of course, Very attractive for investors. It's attractive for money. And in the early days of capitalism, markets and businesses collapsed all the time, leading to phrases like creative destruction. Now to stabilize them, just like stabilizing society, people again turned to the military and its bureaucracy. In the 1800s, bureaucracy seemed more efficient than markets, says Senate. And over time, strategic profit became synonymous with effective government. So profit equals good government. In the late 19th century, even the language of investing took on military terms like campaigns and strategic thinking. So while Marx, in the late 1800s, he was really looking at capital's effects from its really unstable roots and its vast inequality, well, this new, more stable capitalism, which is, of course, social capitalism plus bureaucracy, well, it sure seems better. But still, it has its own costs as everything does. But perhaps these are more subtle to the unaware public. So for Max Weber, a society that increasingly rationalized institutional life through a militaristic structure? Yeah, well, they would become military in character, fraternal and aggressive. And he argued the 20th century would be dominated by an armed ethos. Well, yeah, uh, that was pretty spot on given all the wars in the 1900s. And just like in the last episode, of course, we talked about the militarization of the police. And the issue here is that the underlining psychology opens a path that embraces that direction for us. So when it happens, we aren't even appalled by it. We're already primed to think it's a natural progression. Now, as a more complex consequence, Weber argued as well that time would become militaristic. And in this way, it would become incremental, regimented, and above all, predictable. So this is called rationalized time. And this really changed how people narrated their lives. They're no longer just thinking about what would happen. They planned on how things should happen. This predictability allowed workers to plan and to buy houses and develop a sense of agency and power. That all sounds great, right? Well, this is a time of Bildung. I don't know how you say it. It's German. Uh, This is a German conception of building yourself for a life wherein steadiness of purpose became more important than boasts of ambition. It might seem a bit iron cagey automaton to have all this stability, which might really annoy the crap out of us open progressive types. Yeah, but for a large swath of the population, from recent polls roughly half the population, this kind of predictability and stability and this promise was a very reassuring ball. And yet, of course, you're going to look around you today and you might think, Heck, Ryder, I don't see any of that stability. I don't have any predictability. I just have anxiety. I can't be steady of purpose because my job is constantly shifting. Well, yeah. We're now on what's called the fresh page of history, where we have asked for and actively worked to disintegrate this bureaucratic pyramid. And oddly enough, this has returned us to insecurity by our own demands. <laughs> Part two, the fresh page. Yeah, so I feel nostalgically wistful when I hear about building, building yourself for life. Or even when William James talks about things like carving out the individual from a marble block. These steady, constructive tasks, I mean, it's as if we have years to create a masterpiece of ourselves. And speaking of masterpieces... There's this phrase that Sennett uses to describe our current time, and this is kind of loosely Shakespearean, yet it's also of Karl Marx. All that is solid melts into air. Yeah, welcome to liquid modernity. In 1962, with the Port Huron statement, the left complained of the rigid big institutions who seemed to have individuals in an iron grip. Sennett says, we partly got what we asked for when we asked for all this change. Because, of course, now we have dispensed with these corporations that gave jobs for life. Welfare and education have become less fixed and smaller in scale. And rulers today are dismantling rigid bureaucracy. Thanks for the ideas, Port Huron Statement. But, of course, it's not being replaced with the little things that they wanted, that they really envisioned, the face-to-face relations, the solidarity of the communal realm, or sensitive negotiations filled with sympathy instead life has become a fragmented disrupted drive-by affair in a perverse fashion we dismantled the iron cage into a set of monkey bars yeah and now we're all left dangling exhausted begging to maybe give more of ourselves just so we aren't dropped into the abyss below and I really can't shake the image of every action or sci-fi movie, and Star Wars in particular, where the hero is left there dangling by their fingertips while standing above as some smirking evil thing offering a deal for them to be saved. And of course, in the hero's journey, Luke lets go and he falls rather than betray himself. But of course, in our daily life, nothing is really quite so blatantly Joseph Campbell and it doesn't emerge that way. And this is not until one day when we find ourselves kind of like, of course, asthmatically gasping through a black mask while grinding our heel into the metaphorical fingers of the new upstart, and we just have to wonder, uh, when, when did I join the dark side? I, I really I just wanted to keep my job. Well, from archetypes to economics, one underlying motivation people usually point at when this kind of thing happens is money. But let's also be really clear about this. Our societies have produced a capital explosion. There is so much wealth generation, it's wealth creation really. It's just crazy. And so also this is of course why people are crazy angry, is because we can see the wealth, yet for some reason with all this wealth, with everything that's been given and sacrificed, we're still left unstable, insecure, scrambling and scraping for breadcrumbs. So to survive on this fresh page of history, this nice clean page, much less to thrive in it, what does it take? Well, Senate says it requires a very unique person who can meet three challenges. So let's see if you're up for them, right? These three challenges are time, talent, and surrender. One, time. How do you manage short-term relations, jobs, and tasks? And this really is how do you narrate your life story without long-term time frames when everything is short-term? And possibly, you do this by losing your sense of self for prolonged periods of time. Now, militarized time, that is this reliable, predictable time, is coming apart. So you can't plan, and you have less agency and power, and you have to be okay with that. Now, talent. Number two, doing one thing really well, like a craftsman. Unfortunately, that is now detrimental and one-dimensional, and thus of no use to corporations. So your talent and potential... Well, yeah, that now must be mined and updated frequently. Potential now is much more valuable than your past achievements, so be ready to give up your history. This comes to part three, surrender. How do you let go of the past when no one owns their own job? So there's no guaranteed places anymore in the pyramid. You have to surrender yourself and your past over and over to always be becoming the new potential. Once again... Surrender your long-term narrative of yourself. In short, the successful person today is flexible, unattached, and without history. They are fragmented, they are fast, and they're open for hire. Yeah, kind of like Boba Fett. Now, on this fresh page we're on, George Soros says, transactions have replaced relationships. And I'm going to keep saying this over and over. Now, in a globalized multinational world economy... These flows have become less coherent. The desires of the corporation, as Deleuze would say, are obscure and they're less reliable. Sennett offers an example of interviews from the early 90s. And these startups in Silicon Valley where programmers took money from bankers, well, they tried an idea out, they failed, and they moved on. Sennett says they despised steadiness of purpose. And they had an impressive tolerance for failure. Yet, of course, eventually, the bankers moved on. And, of course, the dot-com bubble burst in the early aughts. And suddenly, this fresh page in history, well, yeah, all these people are alone on it. And as one programmer says, They no longer want to know you anymore. They have heard too many bright ideas before. And Senate says, Alone, they suddenly discovered time. The shapeless time, which before had exhilarated them. The absence of rules for how to proceed. Well, now their page was blank. In this limbo, isolated, without a life narrative, they discover failure. So this is just like a machinist who has lost her trade. Or similarly, the young student who wants an arch media degree, but, uh, you know, they're tempted. But on this fresh page, well, they all just face the prospect of drift. Drifting in isolation. In my mind, this drifting in isolation, this echoes Baudrillard's sentiment of the last episode, where we move faster without a shadow, without ideals to reference, but we really can't plan on where we're going. And this is really like being dropped from those monkey bars, and you're falling, or as a friend of mine reminded me, it's really all just a matter of perspective, perhaps without orientation. Falling is the same thing as flying. Your terror can become euphoria. By embracing the acceleration. And yeah, and eventually we're going to get into accelerationism. So hold on to that. Part 3. Social Capitalism. In the olden days, the pyramidal bureaucratic structure with its rationalized time, it worked to teach delayed gratification. Now, of course, this is what my dad always talked about. He was always like, Go out and shoot baskets now, so when the game comes, you won't miss. And I guess I was supposed to be prepared to reap benefits from this. I I don't know what that is. People cheering, dating a cheerleader. I have no idea. Uh, It didn't work, though. (laughs) Uh, Either way, the other side of this is, Be disciplined to study now, so you don't fail, and then you can make lots of money in the future. And then, of course, I went to art school, so... Anyway, Weber says the problem is... We learn the discipline of delay, and it becomes so ingrained the person will not permit themselves to arrive. This is crazy, right? The anticipated future never arrives, and their delay fulfillment turns into the iron cage, and this is now their psychological home. Permanent deferral and ambition abstract and alienate the person from participating in a real and open life. They become rigid, just like the iron cage, walking only on the stepping stones that are laid before them. Well, this type of training of people, this aligns with the homogenization of all things, the stability of all things, the steady path. So to accrue social capital, one must become like the machines one works around. Through Taylorism with his stopwatch factory management system, all in the name of efficiency, well, people are not really unique. And actually, if anything, they must hide their distinct life story. Now, this seems to imply that an army of drones would be formed, and you're absolutely right. There were a lot of drones, and they were formed. But as Senate explains, and he kind of says he wishes that Max Weber knew more about it, in the military, they may all look the same and act the same, but there's a latitude and some autonomy through a chain of interpretation. So when Otto von Bismarck screams, Give me a ham sandwich now! About two hours later, a salad arrives. Yeah, so this is really just playing telephone because in all orders, there is a couple ways to interpret it. There's the literal interpretation and there's the spirit of the order that is translated. And through each level of command that this passes, well, it's basically morphed and it's mediated a little bit more and a little bit more into what is considered best. So the Bismarck, really, he only thinks he's in charge. In the military, being on top of the pyramid, it's not really the peak of power you would think it would be. So another command, attack that castle, well, that now becomes, damn their water supply so no one dies and we'll still get the castle in the end. So the pyramid may be rigid, but equally, there's kind of this underground economy of vast stores of knowledge about what works. And this becomes manifest in backchannel translating and interpreting. So there's two things Senate brings up here regarding social capital in an organization. So these teachers in Chicago and London, these nurses in New York, they're in these really poor, rough neighborhoods and these difficult jobs, and they definitely could have left for better, safer, easier, and higher-paying jobs, but they didn't. So why not? Well, their small steps of authority, being able to make small changes to negotiate and to mediate, it gave them a personal presence. They may even hate the institution, the hospital, the military, whatever they work for, like in Catch-22, but they also get to retain a sense of agency, and they actually say that they feel as if, in their little space, in their role, that they can make a difference. Senate says, even a dysfunctional organization, the ability to interpret power can give an individual a sense of agency. They feel they can make a difference, and even if that is an illusion, Senate says, No adult can proceed without it. Part four. Capital. At some point, we have a change in capital. And this is really when we're moving from the local banker and the kind of handshake relationships to the global merchant banker. Hmm, kind of fancy suit. Who the hell is that? So all of a sudden we have offshoring and we have mergers and acquisitions and all this stuff arrives and capital really began insinuating itself into the fabric of the corporation. Now, of course, to me, this all feels kind of meta because instead of making products for wealth, companies themselves became the wealth. And once again, we have begun to break substance from meaning and we form a trans economics that actually runs itself with little reference to the real economy. So in the daily lives of companies, This plays out as, you know, I don't know, foreign agents arriving, and all of a sudden they're destabilizing previously working systems and relationships, and there's investment opportunities that lead to things like hostile takeovers, and all these institutional relationships, oh well, isn't that quaint? These are just troublesome burdens to be shed, and at the top of the pyramid, well, now there's kind of like this lateral movement, just guys at the top just hop from pyramid to pyramid, Now, without relations or even understanding of the companies, this new power, instead, it's answering to investors, not answering to the base of the pyramid. And the investors, they were impatient. This is what is called impatient capital. And you can see the change that happens. In 1965, a pension fund held stocks for about four years. In 2000, it averaged less than four months. So the game had changed to serve short-term rewards. And this is, of course, to the detriment of the company, employees, and products. You remember in part one when we said stability equals profit, which was seen somehow as effective government? And we said things like bureaucracy was more efficient than markets. Well, in the 90s, Senate says kind of a reversal occurred, where all of a sudden institutional solidity became an investment negative. Stability was a sign of weakness. The willingness to destabilize one's own organization sent a positive signal to investors. This is absolutely crazy. So if your corporation was stable, this was actually seen as stagnation. This was a negative. And of course, now we can't overstate this enough. We also have technology showing up. We now had email. And this is the bane of everyone's existence, but it's a technology that shifted and altered the way that companies work because it changed the way they communicate. Now, its key destructive feature was not actually its instantaneous means of communication. No more ordering a ham sandwich and waiting two hours to end up with a salad, because beyond the immediacy, it diminished interpretation and mediation. So when somebody says now, when the CEO sends you an email saying, attack that castle, well, this is now documented and sent from a man high up with a fragile ego and, He sent it directly 16 levels down into the private, right, who now has to attack that castle. You have to do literally what he said, even if you know it's a bad idea and there's a better way. So the self-healing and thoughtful filtration process that we used to have in the pyramidal bureaucracy, well, that's gone. And this is a very dramatic shift. We now have centralized power that can reach out to anyone at any point in time. There's no longer a pyramid. Equally, with technology, we have reduced the need for the lower layer of the pyramid through things like automation and gadgets and barcode readers and whatnot. So let's return again to part one. Remember where the Bismarck? He needed a social system that gave everyone a place in society so they wouldn't be out running amok and having sex and farting all over the place. And yes, he wanted all those farts saved for the nation, so he created a militarized bureaucracy for society. And this formed a social capital where everyone knew who and what they were, and your farts were valued. But now, we're wiping out huge swaths of the pyramid, removing the lower level of workers. And of course, where are they supposed to go? They have no place to turn. And anyone left in the pyramid has been stripped of their ability to interpret or negotiate because of the nature of email communication. Increasingly, the center has stripped authority and agency from the periphery. But equally, the center makes more and more egotistical, hubristic mistakes without layers of humans to correct for them. So the other thing about this, though, is you got to look at the technology and say, well, this all kind of makes sense. The rationale is that keeping 30 people on the payroll when they can be replaced by one machine, ah, that's kind of stupid. And it's actually kind of patronizing to the employees who know that the only reason they would stay employed is because of sentimentality. like. As a worker, if you know that out in the world you need social prestige and agency to be a fulfilled person, doing the job that a machine can do so much better as a type of pity or charity, oh, that's probably not granting anyone a sense of dignity or honor, though they indeed may be thankful for the job. So the rules have changed here. The successful person must now learn new skills to stay employable, which is really just a race to stay ahead of the machine. So Who is this new person who can outrun machines? Who thrives in the leveraged buyout world? Stronger. Well, Senate says one trait they all have is they eschew dependency, finding it distasteful. They value instead their ability to mine their talent and promote their potential, to be seen as useful and not to be patronized. This is the group who, of course, clearly believes in the meritocracy, and they actually fear that the welfare state encourages institutional dependency oh god to be dependent on anything or anyone would be horrible now good old von bismarck well he wanted dependency exactly for these reasons for stability he purposefully built the entire society around this because he knew it was necessary but this individual who fears dependency i mean they're somehow blindly and paradoxically reliant on their own network to survive but I guess they think that that doesn't count because they think they built it without really considering the ramifications of how it came to be. Sennett says these people worry about a loss of self-control and they have a feeling of shame in deferring to others, which is almost exactly what Jackal says in Moral Mazes. The number one sin in a corporation is to lose self-control and to defer to others is to lose authority within the pack. We have, in fact... Brought back all the raw emotional traumas of the past into institutionalized corporate form. What was once stressful trauma due to chaos is now a planned feature in our work conditions. Part 5 MP3 Player An outdated but useful analogy that Cinema makes as we have moved beyond the bricks of the pyramid to the circuits and lasers of the mp3 player yeah you remember those back before you had a phone that would do it all for you yeah you'd load 1500 songs onto one mp3 player and it never skipped like your cds but of course the sound quality of an mp3 it's not really great but somehow popularity and ease won out over quality as usually happens and I mean, this is just like how the Apple iPod was basically the worst MP3 player out there, but it kind of simplified the user interface into that wheel thing, and then people ate it up, and I just bring that all up to show how really stupid we are when it comes to adopting new tech, and let's not even get into why the MP3 player won. I mean, it's a very mediocre digital format, and somehow it became the popular norm, and okay, I'm geeking out. Let's stop that. Uh, But the analogy is, we have gone from rich layers of intelligence and mediation in a pyramid form to a highly specific function. We now push a button. There's a task. The signal moves through the circuit in one path and instantaneously plays one song. And it can play that one song over and over, or you can switch, right? Just like in a company. But earlier, I mentioned the spirit of the command. The MP3 player doesn't understand if I say something like, play me some anti-capitalist music it can only understand rage against the machine yeah so the machine or the corporation well it's programmable now just like an mp3 player i can set up an order of functions and it jumps track to track task to task and it has much better functionality or memory than a single person but it's not creative or smart it can't respond or intuit. And we all know this, right? Now for a company, this jumping around is merely employing who you need, when you need them, then discarding them. The workers merely accomplish the task. And they never really get invested enough to suggest a better, smarter way. I mean, why would they? So when the laser eye, when that focuses on you and hits you, you play your track and you're done. This MP3 player, this model delayers the organization and makes jobs casual and tasks non-linear. Increasingly, jobs are now temporary. It's the fastest growing sector of the American labor force. It's hitting about 20% if you factor in work that avoids benefits. So we all see the trend here, right? These are direct temporary tasks. There's no stability. There's no organizational ethos. And with the quick shifting nature of the corporations, no history and no predictable future. And of course, (laughs) let's not even talk about quaint things like loyalty. No, this has massive effects. In the outside world, where people interact socially, they of course are losing prestige and honor without steady employment or a place in the world. They don't feel useful, they don't know when or where they're going to fit in next. Now, rationalized organizational time has somehow been dismantled at the same time that social capital has shifted into a more kind of Ronin or John Wick gun for hire. This kind of ethos is now really shifted, So risk-taking is emphasized. And there's now, especially for the young, a disbelief in the character of work. There's a lack of respect for being a bureaucrat and moral integrity or virtue through work, something that you would find in the Protestant work ethic. Yeah, that's completely laughable, right? Now, Senate says where workers once could articulate their desires and future plans, current workers find it hard to even verbalize or find language to pin down their amorphous impulses. This is echoed across the corporation as formal and informal trust ends up dissolving and people are looking around for authority or leadership for some sort of direction. Senate brings up that there's charismatic and institutional authority. Both are voluntary, but charismatic authority is when people look to the leader to fulfill something incomplete within them, while bureaucratic authority looks to the leader to take responsibility. In either case, Authority is voluntary obedience. It is given. But as distance grows between the center of the MP3 and the workers on the periphery, we see inequality and indeterminacy increase. Or basically to say this another way, when you see that not even the owners are committed to the company, they have basically set the playlist and walked out or helped put it on random, or they try to rule by email. I mean, there becomes a lack of loyalty or trust. And I think that's understandable. There are no relations here, it's only transactions. And there's no negotiative interaction either. And that illusion of trying to make a difference that we all need, well, that can't be sustained in a company like this. This is kind of odd, but to promote successful outcomes, companies now have several, maybe five or six, small autonomous groups given the same task. And then guess what? Yeah, they get to compete against each other, isn't that fun? Yeah, these internal markets, well, they show a very distinct shift from, like, old-fashioned Taylorism, right? Where this guy was a micromanager, and he'd have a cow about something like this. I mean, this is the height of inefficiency. But today, the emphasis is not about duplication of effort, but it's getting the best result in the shortest time, speed over cost. This, oddly enough, a small tangent here, it reminded me of No Country for Old Men. When Anton Chigurh, Javier Bardem's assassin character... And he's talking with his accountant, and he's asking why they hired another killer for the same job. Like he's also mad about the duplication of effort. And the accountant says to him of the boss, "Well, he thought with more people looking." And Bardim cuts him off, saying, "That is foolish. You picked the the one one right right tool. tool." Yeah, you do, right? You pick the craftsman dedicated to his trade. The person has now become a tool or a function to try to play multiple tracks on your mp3 player all at the same time well that's just stupid and yet that's where we're at you know earlier we pointed out that talent in one domain is not what companies want anymore potential is more desirable than your past achievements and you see here how anton the one right tool even for a single-minded sociopath that's not even enough for the company so leadership gurus in the 90s they said things like loyalty is dead And thus, the individual must take on the role of self-governance, self-training, and they must entrepreneurially hone themselves, stripping away those cumbersome, antiquated notions of loyalty, trust, or respect. Right? So now, all of a sudden, we're lighter, we're faster, we're free of our shared histories, we're free of friendships, or family, or social capital, or prestige, or even our sense of self. In a social setting this does start to smack a little bit of Thunderdome, right? Where the corporation sets up these false competitions for sport and they drive up anxiety and stress. Yeah, yeah. While alienating your colleagues from whom we're supposed to be forming trust bonds. Yeah, this is great, right? This is totally the gladiator model with a little bit of MP3 thrown in. Are you you not not entertained? entertained? And just like an MP3, it strips the richness and quality from the source in order to have a lighter, faster, easier, and much much more transferable function. This is not the best of us. This is simply the version stripped into a popular format, and like a track, our reduced mp3 version is anxiously awaiting for the player's laser eye to shine upon us, please shine upon me, upon which we will jump up and perform, and then it skips to the next track, and we're left anxiously, unknowingly waiting until it will turn again. In delayering the corporation and replacing individuals and in roles with technology, there's also a loss of institutional memory, which was originally stored in the pyramid in the people. And now there's no memory of translating layers to interpret who and what works and what doesn't. And of course, the companies have become unaware of how to rebuild social capital or trust, because not only have they replaced relations with transactions. But oddly, and fearfully, despite all their power, the leaders in the center are washing their hands of thinking critically about their employees, and they outsource their authority of any kind of painful decision to consultants. Yeah, consultants are the true Ronans, Those are the true John Wicks out there. And consultants, often dismissive of things they know nothing about, much like creative work, wield the power and authority like a hammer. They tend to wreck companies, and then they pocket their insane fee and walk away, and Senate shares how consultants and their hubris nearly broke the BBC in the 90s. This is kind of like outsourcing your playlist to your mom, or maybe sharing your Spotify account only to find out that your friends let their kids use it. So this is the divorce of authority from power, and it's the hiding from accountability or responsibility. It really is now the hiring of Anton Chigurh or Fett because you can't handle your own problems. Looking people in the eye has become too hard. Can I outsource that to someone? Perhaps Marina Abramovic. Maybe she can look people in the eye for me. Okay, that is the first of three sections in this book. I just really thought Sennett's insights were quite rich, and they help us map out how we have gone from instability and chaos to state stability to capital insinuating itself. And now we have corporate instability and very much weakened social institutions that are left to deal with the fallout. As Senate says, the social has been diminished. Capital remains. Next time for the culture of new capitalism by Senate, I hope to tackle section two, and maybe if I learn how to edit, we can maybe squeeze section three in there as well. Anyway, anyway, As always, if you enjoyed this, if you learned something, if you got one little takeaway from it, please take a second to rate and review the show. And of course, I'm now accepting memberships on the website at letusthinkaboutit.com. Until next time, stay safe.